Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. So before we get into this Palm Sunday message today, I do want to ask you, how many of you enjoyed the Privileges series that we just finished up last week? Is that helpful? I can't tell you. You never really know how finance-related messages are going to go, right? Because um, it, it just, it's so closely tied to the heart of who we are, like how we feed our bellies. <laughs> uh, it just is. But this particular series, I got so much positive feedback. And it wasn't stuff like, like I, you know, I have to change my actions. But it really was like, I, gotta, I, I need a heart change. And therefore, my actions have to match. Like, it was just such a beautiful Jesus changing us from the inside out kind of moment. Uh, so good. Good. And I, I was just so very proud of you all for following the Holy Spirit's promptings in that and submitting even when it's hard, you know. This year, I plan to continue to just boldly ask you to contribute to the Freedom Foundation. If you love your church, right, if you have found Jesus here, if, if this is someplace you call home, if you've had your own life change here, like, so into that. Give a little extra this year into the Freedom Foundation. My goal, and it's an ambitious one, is to raise $100,000 for the Freedom Foundation this year, which will literally cover all of our mortgage payments. It will. It goes directly into this building, this property, this home, right? So that's my goal. I am telling you it's a tall order because we haven't given that much to it since 2018. <laughs> Uh, in fact, last year, we only gave about $10,000 into the Freedom Foundation. So it's a big goal. Can we believe for that with me? Okay. <laughs> this year goes directly into the mortgages. It is sowing into this, this resource where we all, you know, build relationships together, where we grow together. And uh, we did see those of you that gave a privileges card in the one week that I asked for them, uh, a, an additional $800 per month was faith promised into it, which is awesome. But I, I, God is a provider, right? I know he will provide. He's going to use his people to do that. Uh, he cares about this church more than I do. I have sometimes have a hard time believing that. <laughs> but he does. He cares about it so much more. He wants it to succeed more than I do. He is the provider. Amen? All right. Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. I, I was sitting at my home office desk uh, one day this week, and one of my foster kids he walked up to me, and he sat on the bench beside me, and he said, are you reading your Bible? And I said, well, yes, in fact, I am. He said, for church? Like, well, sometimes I read it for church, and sometimes I read it for me, right? And he's like, well, well, what are you reading? And so I started to tell him a little about John 13, which I was studying at the time. And he kind of interrupted me and he said, oh, Jesus, Jesus is a king, right? The funny thing is, I sort of, it, it seems like such a silly and easy to answer question on the surface, right? But right at that moment, I was actually studying the message today and my teaching from Bold and Brave on Wednesday night. And I actually hesitated with that answer for a second because... I can say with all certainty that no, Jesus was not an earthly king. Could he have been? Absolutely. Were there people who wanted him to be? Yes. But he chose not to be. He chose specifically to lower himself to the position of a slave. 
it's a completely unique thing about who Jesus is that it is absolutely important to understand. Is he king? Yes, absolutely. He's king of my life, right? He is, is king of another realm. He will be king of this earthly realm someday, but was he king when he walked on earth? No, he chose not to be him. And today we're going to read this, the Palm Sunday story where he could have been king. This is the story of what Jesus cares about and what he does not care about. See, I think a lot of us get this completely wrong. As Christians, those of us who are following Jesus, I think we have huge misconceptions about what Jesus does care about and what he doesn't. A couple of weeks ago in the Privileges series, I had promised you all a message about what Jesus gets angry about. Because when you understand what he does get angry about and what he doesn't, it's incredibly freeing. And it's an example to live up to. So do you ever wonder, what does God get angry about? I don't think a lot of us wonder. I think we think we know. (laughs) It's something we don't often focus on either in the evangelical Pentecostal world. I think mostly because we're called to spread the good news, right? Not the bad news. We're called to spread the good news, which is that God uses imperfect people. He loves us unconditionally. He sent his son. He's not angry with us, right? There's nothing that you can do that would make God disappointed in you, right? That would make him separate you from his love. He knows every mistake you've already made and and everyone you're going to make, and he's not taking it all back. He's not taking your salvation back, right? He loves us so much. That is the good news. But that's not to say that God never gets angry. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God sort of seems really angry all the time. If you read through the story of the Old Testament, He seems like he's always having to punish his children for something, put them back in line. And then he, you know, he requires blood sacrifices for sin. He sends wars and inflicts slavery. He seems like an angry God. But then Jesus came and he preached love and mercy and peace. And he offered his own blood as a sacrifice, a payment for our sin. And everything changed. We we tend to think of Jesus as this peace-loving, pacifist, gentle and kind. He welcomed the little children to him. That's, that's the Jesus we like to picture, right? But did you know Jesus did get angry? I see Jesus get angry a few times throughout the Gospels, actually. He, he gets angry at those who damage children, for example. Really angry. Like, listen to these words. If you harm one of these little ones, better for you that a millstone be draped around your neck and you be dropped into the depths of the sea. Jesus said that. Right? It's serious. I see Jesus get angry when Lazarus dies. Right before raising him from the dead, the Bible actually says he's angry. I see Jesus get angry at the Pharisees kind of often the teachers of religious law. I see Jesus rebuke Peter. Do you remember the get behind me, Satan? Satan, it's a big word coming from the Messiah. And he's saying it to Peter, one of his own disciples. Peter has this misdirected faith in that moment. Jesus is calling out. And I see Jesus get angry in the temple twice. 
twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once near the very end. We're going to read some of this today, but I also want to preface this with there's, there's this really odd little passage where we also see Jesus get angry. It's a very little passage sandwiched in between the, the getting angry in the temple story and the Palm Sunday story. It's about Jesus cursing a fig tree. Do you remember this? It's one of those confusing passages that always sort of perplexed me. And it's sandwiched right in the middle of this big, amazing Palm Sunday moment. And then this flipping tables in the, in the temple moment. And it's just like, God, what, what did the fig tree ever do to you? You know? Like, why choose that to curse in that particular moment? I just never understood it. But when reading all of this together in context... I think it gives us a much clearer picture of what Jesus does care about and what he does not care about, okay? So we're going to read all of this together. Now, usually the Palm Sunday story is told kind of by itself, but it doesn't exist by itself in the story. Do you all know this is actually a week within Christianity? It's called Holy Week, right? Something significant happened almost every moment of every day this week. And if, if you want to study a little bit more about this, we're actually reading a Bible plan together on the Version Bible app, or you can go to the FE Church app, or you can go to, I should have put this on the screen, fe.church slash Bible plan and read along with us all week, sort of follow Jesus' steps throughout this week. Anyway, let's get into the story. Mark 11 is where we're going to read from this today, starting in verse 1. As Jesus, Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting. Just to give you a little context... <laughs> This particular scenario might seem sort of foreign to us because donkeys and garments laying in the street and like what is actually happening here, right? This is the manner in which kings returning from war would enter Jerusalem. Okay, this was a victory moment. The, the people were welcoming him in the manner of a king who had won a battle. Nobody lesser than a king would get this treatment, okay? This is culturally how leaders entered Jerusalem, how royalty entered Jerusalem. And, and this was the type of honor and celebration that they received. It was a big moment, big moment, okay? So all the people around him were shouting, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, praise God in highest heaven. Again, big words. They fully expected this man they were calling king to come into the city and go straight to the palace. Straight to the palace. 
straight to the, the place of government. They wanted to overthrow the power that had held them captive for so long, that had mistreated them and distorted their religion and looked down on them and enslaved them. They expected Jesus from Nazareth riding on a donkey today to overthrow Rome. That's what they were calling for when they were doing this, okay? The hysteria was such at this time of Jesus' ministry that everyone would have heard about this. Caesar himself would have heard about this. This was no small moment. In fact, Matthew 21.10 says the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar when he entered. Who is this, they asked. People that hadn't even heard about Jesus of Nazareth yet were like, what is going on, right? Everyone knew this was a huge moment. But did Jesus go to the palace? I like to imagine them, you know, like we, we know what parades look like. It's sort of people lining the street in, in this parade and they're leading him. The garments are being laid in front of him straight to where they think he's going to go, right? At some point, there must have been a right or left situation, right to the palace, left to the temple. I don't know how it was structured, but there had to have been this moment where the people were going toward the palace and Jesus said, no, 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 not going there. I'm going this way. And they sort of had to be like, uh, okay, maybe he knows in a different room. Maybe it's Jesus, you know, maybe he, there's traffic up ahead we don't know about, right? And they're like, okay, let's follow him. He doesn't go to the palace. He goes, verse 11, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. What just happened? Right? If, you, if you're picturing this moment in context, like put yourself in this moment. Jesus comes in like a king. Everybody's shouting. Everybody's pumped. He goes to the temple, looks around for a minute and leaves. What just happened? It must have been the most anticlimactic moment in history. <laughs> like they all thought this big showdown was going to happen. Right? He was going to march himself into the temple. They were all going to follow him, cheering long, and they were going to, I don't know, God was going to rain down fire or something. Something big was supposed to happen. The, the walls would come crashing down, but nothing happened. Can you imagine what the disciples were feeling at this time? They must have thought, now was their moment, finally. They had followed this guy around for three years and slept in tents and <laughs> they had no idea where their next meal was coming from for so long and they've been confused for three years. Finally, this was the moment where everything was going to make sense again, right? They're going to take back Jerusalem. This was their victory. I told you so moment to all the people that doubted. And then Jesus says another confusing, weird thing again, <laughs> right? Three years they had followed Jesus one huge whirlwind of confusion. They almost never get a straight answer from him. Amazing things are always happening. Love is exhibited. They're relearning everything they thought they knew about God. And every time they turn around, Jesus is doing some other crazy thing they did not expect. Here he is again, doing it. So he goes into the temple. Everybody watches him look around. And he leaves. But most sermons I've ever heard on Palm Sunday, they stop there. I don't think this story is meant to be understood alone. So I'm going to keep reading and I think you'll see what I mean. Verse 12 says, the next morning, so we're now on Monday morning, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. This is the few words that got me hung up when I was studying this passage for a long time. It was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. That's something that I would say. You know what I mean? Like, I want a fig right now. I don't care if it's too early. Screw you, tree. I, like, right? I would curse that tree. I feel like that's, that's a human moment. But hang on, we'll understand it here in a minute. Verse 15, I want to get this whole passage read and then we'll dig into it a little bit. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He didn't do this yesterday. He left, slept, cursed the fig tree, comes back to drive the people out of the temple that shouldn't be there. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That's anger, right? Jesus is angry. So is anger a sin? Crickets. No. Because Jesus did it. He had it. He felt it. It's an emotion. It's what we do with that and what we get angry about that matters. See, to give you a little context here, they had redesigned the temple in such a way that you basically had to be able to pay for the big sacrifices to get into the inner courts. Essentially, you had to pass to the next level in order to pass to the next level of Jewishness, uh, of relationship with God, of even like a status in their culture. You had to pay more. So the rich could enter. The poor could not. The rich could be clean in God's sight. The poor were looked down upon and told they were worthless. The poor were kicked while they were down, told God was angry with them, that punishment was coming, and maybe even that they were the reason that God wasn't saving them from their oppressors. They were being blamed. The rich, meanwhile, were getting educated. They could speak in words the poor could never understand. They, they bought special prayer boxes and robes and would parade through the streets in these lavish costumes so that people would see them and practically worship them. That's what they wanted. They were showing off their worthiness, their righteousness, their specialness. The poor had no chance. No chance of being in God's presence. No chance of leveling up in their religious world and their culture and their lives. The Pharisees and teachers of religious law were no better than Rome. No better than their oppressors. In fact, they were worse because they were doing it to their own people for nothing but selfishness and pride. They made a very accessible God seem inaccessible to the average person. They made God seem aloof and distant and angry. They were spiritually abusing people in the name of God. 
as setting up standards so high only the rich and educated could ever reach. While appearing to have God all figured out, they couldn't have been further from him. While appearing to understand more about God than the poor, they could not have understood less. They had the power to know him better. They had the education. They had the the resources, the time. They could have been a blessing to their people. But they couldn't humble their hearts. They chose power over obedience. They chose status over humility, and they chose pride over people. I think one more chunk here. Verse 18, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Still surprised. You hear the note of surprise? Still don't understand who Jesus is, really. Verse 22, then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen. Have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Look, I know these passages, they're so often preached separately. They may seem unrelated. They may be taken out of context and used for their own points. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. But when put together, they reveal something about the nature of God. Remember, the beauty of the Bible is in the details. But that doesn't mean you can only focus on the details. You also have to see the larger picture that these details exist within. Okay, I now believe that the fig tree was an object lesson here for the disciples. That God was showing them something specific and the timing of it happening within all of this chaos, right? The Palm Sunday and everything going on in the temple, the timing of this lesson is very important. This particular object lesson was given to the men that would go on interpreting all of these confusing events for us for the next 2,000 years. These are the men that would go on to develop and implement Jesus' invention of the church rather than the temple. They created a whole new way to worship God. They had to understand it correctly. See, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as a vineyard, as a tree, or as a planting. There are six passages in particular. One in Judges, Isaiah, two in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There's two in Ezekiel as well. God specifically describes Israel as a plant, as a vineyard or a tree. Right? If, if the disciples would have thought a little bit deeper about it in the moment, put in context with the scriptures, they might have realized what Jesus was doing in the moment. He was giving them an object lesson, an important object lesson. The fig tree is actually a foundational metaphor for Israel and her spiritual health all throughout the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah says, the time had come for God's people to yield fruit that would bless the world. And several times the prophets like Micah, Jeremiah, and Hosea describe God as inspecting Israel for, hear this, early figs. It's too early in the season for fruit, remember? 
God inspects Israel regularly for, quote, early figs as a sign of spiritual fruitfulness. And in those books, he finds nothing. Micah 7.1 says, Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. And in two of Israel's exiles, Assyrian and Babylonian, God pours out the curse of barrenness, and Israel becomes a rotten fig, Jeremiah 29 says. Right, but all is not lost. God promises to one day replant Israel and produce healthy figs from her again. This is prophesied multiple times in Joel, Amos, Micah, Zechariah, Ezekiel. All throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament is rich with fig metaphors. The disciples might have been able to see that in the moment. But I think it didn't, it didn't really hit them until later. And I think Jesus was doing a couple important things with this object lesson. In fact, I believe the events of these two days that, you know, of the Holy Week, we now call Holy Week, but the Sunday and Monday events that happen within Holy Week, I think they were always meant to be seen together, not apart. The disciples wanted us to see the whole heart of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Number one, Jesus was doing a couple important things with this. Number one, Jesus was displaying his power and authority over all creation. Was Jesus humble? Absolutely. In fact, he washes the disciples' feet as an element of this week. He lowers himself to a position of a slave. He washes their feet. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have the power and authority over all creation. In fact, at Palm Sunday, the story of him entering Jerusalem in the manner of a king shows us that he had the power to do it. He could have been king. In the eyes of the people, he should have been king. I called this sermon, I don't know if it was up yet. I called this sermon the would have been, should have been, could have been king. I almost didn't name it that because I didn't know how to spell it. Would have been, should have been, but that's not how you say it, right? Would have been, could have been, should have been. I think I also say it in a different order every time. But <laughs> he could have been king. In the eyes of the people, he should have been king. He was there for the taking if he wanted it. He didn't. Proving that power, earthly power, wasn't what Jesus was after. Not something that he cared about in particular. In fact, he had already been given all power and authority on planet Earth. So he didn't need to be king in that time and place because he already was and is and is to come of all the times and places. Right? If he had chosen kingship in that time, we might not still be saying his name every day today. He chose kingship for eternity rather than in that time and place. But the example of the fig tree also demonstrated his power and authority over earth. The fig tree was a physical sign to those who already believed, proving to them that he held the power to do what he did to flip the tables, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to fulfill the law, to bring about something new. Anybody else find it interesting that he, he had amassed such crowds, but he didn't curse the fig tree in front of the crowds. He didn't flip the tables when everyone was watching. He chose the times and places to do these things. And it's interesting to me that he cursed the fig tree only when the disciples were around. 
Do you know the leading priests and teachers of religious law regularly, literally asked him straight up, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? Right? They always were asking for signs because they wanted to know who gave you the right. Did Jesus ever answer them? He rarely answers them throughout the Bible. In fact, he plays sort of riddle games with them to make them not keep asking him that. But here, to his disciples, he proves it to them physically by cursing a fig tree. And I think it was a lesson the disciples were meant to understand later. It's amazing how much we have to see before we can understand. God knows us so well. He knows if he explained it straight up, we still wouldn't get it. <laughs> you know, there's a, an element to having to go through something in order to really understand it. Like try telling a new parent anything about parenting. They know it all, right? <laughs> you have to go through it yourself to be able to get it. So for that matter, try telling a teenager anything at all. They haven't been through adulthood yet. You, it goes in one ear and out the other. They have to experience it for themselves, right? A lot of this, Jesus knew too. And so he gave the disciples these lessons and they sort of dawned on them later. Number two, Jesus was demonstrating the consequences of fruitlessness. With Palm Sunday, the people ushering him in on Palm Sunday, they were waving a whole lot of palm leaves but then they did nothing with it, right? Just days later, they're calling for Jesus' head. The same crowds that welcomed him as a king were literally saying, release, Barab release a murderer, take Jesus, right? They flipped like that. They waved their palm leaves on Sunday morning and they did nothing with it. They wanted a king for them. It was, it was selfishness causing them to wave those leaves. It wasn't for the glory of God. Jesus could see right through it. He knew in just a few short days they'd be calling for his death. There is a consequence to fruitlessness. With the fig tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again, Jesus said. Those words marked the end of an era for that tree because of its fruitlessness. And Jesus' crucifixion marked the end of an era for the temple and its priests because of their fruitlessness. To be without fruit in the Bible, is to be thoroughly unhelpful to anyone, even yourself. Right? God is life. He radiates life and life abundantly. Evil kills life. Right? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. God is the opposite. He gives life. He is the author of life. He gives life and life abundantly. The fig tree, like the bustling temple courts during Passover, <laughs> They were both putting on a good show. And that made it all the worse. It's one thing to lack fruit out of season. It's another thing to lack fruit while pretending to have it. I think this last inspection of the temple was fruit inspection. I think Jesus was looking for any reason to save the system. Any reason to not pass judgment. Any reason to save it. And he found nothing, just like the fig tree. There's no fruit. The fig tree, the temple, is supposed to be feeding people, but once again, it has failed. 
the Passover celebration, the tumults, the, the crowds, the singing, it's all a show. Jesus enters God's house of prayer and finds it a den of robbers. Lots of action, lots of bustle, but no righteousness. Leaves, but no fruit. Same way of accessing God, uh, same God, right? We access him through sacrifice. None of that has changed. Jesus, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. But there's now no reason to allow yourself to be abused by a religion to know God. We have direct access. Now, some Christians use this as an excuse to not attend church. It's that's not what I'm saying. The church is meant to be an organized body of believers on a mission to tell the world the good news, a place to give into, a place to, to serve and to see the world change. Jesus invented the church. You can hardly be a follower of him without giving into one. He used his disciples to see it accomplished, and he does the same today. But a lot of churches have a lot of leaves but no fruit. We're leafing all around. Got plenty of leaves to show the world, right? It looks like we're worshiping. It looks like we're serving. It looks like we're giving. But is there anything actually under it? Is there anything that will sustain somebody else? And here's the third thing. Jesus was setting up parameters for his church. He was giving us a handbook, a rule book, to live by, right? And Palm Sunday, he gave us that he should be worshipped. He deserves the king treatment. Did he deserve to ride in on a donkey and have palm leaves waved at him and the garments in the road? He deserved that, right? He is Jesus, the Messiah, son of God. Of course he deserved it. He deserves to be praised. But the fig tree shows us that's not all he requires. It's not empty praise that Jesus requires. Jesus has no use for an empty praise, actually, because he's never in it for the kingship anyway. And he's demonstrating the stakes of not only failing to produce fruit, but of giving a fruitful impression and failing to back it up. Church, speaking to the church, your parameters are clear. What Jesus cares about and what he doesn't is clear from these passages. We are to praise him, yes, but also back it up, right? Produce fruit. Praise him, yes, but also be good at producing fruit for other people. Jesus is sending a very clear signal. Our personal lives can look like they are in leaf. Right? Our, our leaves may look like those of a, a, a super mom or a... a business tycoon or a winner. We might look like we have the perfect family. We are an A-team Christian. We're the perfect serve team member at church with an overstuffed schedule of, of ministry activities, but the root may be withered. There may be no fruit of holiness or intimacy with God. And what's worse is our leaves may even fool us. Underneath the tithing, the serving, and giving, is there anything real going on with God? Our churches can do the same. Uh, a church's leaves may look impressive with booming attendance and capital campaigns and clever pastors and impressive music, but what will the Lord find upon close inspection? Will he find only leaves or will he find figs too? 
If you were a tree, what fruit would you be producing? If Jesus came and inspected you today, is there anything God could use on your tree? Some of us are choosing greatness over usefulness. It looks green and leafy and may provide shade to one or two for a time, but it won't last long and it won't sustain anyone else. The amazing thing about fruit on a tree is that the fruit isn't about the tree. It doesn't do much for the tree itself, right? The roots, the leaves, they feed the tree, but the fruit isn't about the tree. It may be about the next tree, but it's also about humanity, feeding the life cycle. Trees are producers in the food chain. Their existence is meant to feed people, to give into the life cycle, right? It's not about the fruit on a tree isn't about the tree. It's about us. Now, I like to imagine the disciples 10, 20 years later, still processing back through all these memories, sitting around a fire after a long day of planting churches and proclaiming the gospel in a new town and probably getting persecuted for it. Maybe they were tired and and in pain, no money or property or wife and kids to claim as their own, tempted to give it all up and go home. And maybe they remember the fig tree. Maybe it motivated them to continue to bear fruit, even when it was difficult, in season and out of season, as the Holy Spirit enabled them. Because the only other option is fruitlessness. It may be a leafy fruitlessness, but either way, it's useless to a hungry world. When Jesus comes to inspect, I want to be found bearing fruit. Leading others to Jesus, challenging myself to go deeper and, and dig for truth and allowing Jesus into deeper and deeper parts of my soul to transform me from the inside out. I want to be found bold and brave and fierce for Jesus. I want to be found not just great, but fruitful. And that means probably I have to give up more of my time more of my Netflix time, more of my downtime. It means I stop looking at the church like it's all about me and what I can get out of it. And start looking at the church as what I can give into it. Stop using it as a status symbol and start seeing it as a ser- serving opportunity, a people to love and pour myself into. I stop looking at the world as like, piranhas and leeches just out to get me and start having the heart that Jesus had for it. It's time to lay down our lives like Jesus, guys. Because there's really only a couple of things Jesus ever got mad about. Pride, fruitlessness, and faithlessness. We often think he only gets mad at sin. It's just not true. Jesus loves sinners. He didn't leave them there, but he loved them there. He gets mad about pride, fruitlessness, and faithlessness. When he comes to inspect, I want to be found humble, fruitful, and faithful. The good news today is that Jesus gave us 
all the tools we need to be all of those things. He's given you everything you need to get through this season. And not only to get through it, to survive it, but to thrive in it. And I'm not talking about money or, you know, wealth, riches, two-car garages, fame, power, and success. Right? I'm talking about the peace that passes all understanding. I'm talking about joy unspeakable. You can't even explain it. There's just a joy deep down in your soul. Everything's going wrong. Your world is on fire, but there's joy. I'm talking about a hope anchored in things unseen. Hope that doesn't make sense worldly. I'm talking about fruit in season and out of season. Because by the way, I don't think I explained this. The reason Jesus cursed it, even though it was too early for figs, is because Israel was meant to be a nation that produced fruit for God in season and out of season. God blessed them so abundantly that they could always be the givers in their world. And yet they chose to hold it all to themselves over and over and over throughout their history. God provided for them. We talked about the Sabbath and sabbatical years last week, right? God provided for every Sabbath extra. So they had enough to feed them through the weekend. God provided for every sabbatical year, every seven years, every six years, he'd give them double the crop to last them through the seventh year and onto the eighth year planting season. He gave them enough in season and out of season. They were meant to produce fruit always because they didn't live in the laws of nature anymore. They lived in the laws of their father who blessed them abundantly. They were meant to always be producing fruit. That's what Jesus gives us. Fruit in season and out of season. Power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us another walking around in the fire with us. In crisis. He's with us. And on top of all of that, He gives you the paradigm with which to do it. The church is the hope of the world. Jesus set it up that way. Within each of us, when each of us chooses to let go of our anger toward others and our anger toward God and and allow ourselves to be angry at the same things that God gets angry about, that Jesus got angry about, we'll be unstoppable. He didn't get angry about the loss of power. How many church fights have you heard about people angry about losing power over each other, right? Jesus didn't get angry when people abandoned him and abused him. How many people have you heard leaving churches that have left them out or abused them in some way? Jesus didn't get angry when sinners sinned. He didn't get angry when secular culture acted like secular culture. He expected it. We'll be the church he's called us to be when we're no longer tolerating pride in our lives. And we're no longer tolerating lazy, stubborn fruitlessness. Faithlessness that doesn't convict us to do anything helpful in our lives. When we start to curse those things in our lives rather than everyone else around us, rather than God, Then, and only then, can we be useful in God's hand. When the fruit inspector comes around, the would have been, should have been, could have been king, 
I want to be found fruitful. Not basking in some glory that I've amassed for myself. Not spiritually abusing other people and telling them how wrong they are all the time. That God is far away from them. That they've sinned too much. They could never find it. I don't want to be found doing whatever the crowds want me to do. I want to be found fruitful. Helpful. Faithful and humble. God, help us to do just that. Help us to die to our sinful natures. Our selfishness and pride. Help us to remember your example that you could have been king. You could have taken on power in that time and place. The people were begging you to. You could have been their king, their liberator, their hero. But you chose and said to die for us. That you would be king not just of that time and place, but every time and place. And you laid down your life. You chose to walk to that cross for me. A flawed, imperfect human being doesn't deserve your love and affection. God, help us to get angry at the things you get angry at and nothing else, nothing less. Help us to lay down our pride, our laziness, our entitlement, our greed, and just follow you to the cross. With heads bowed and eyes closed today. Maybe some of you are here today saying, I've never seen Jesus quite like that. To me, God has always been this angry guy in the sky, wagging his finger at me, telling me all the wrong things I've ever done. I've only felt anger from him and other Christians. I, I didn't know how much he loved me. I'm here today to tell you he loves you so much. God is real, God is good, and he loves you so much he sent his son preach a different way of living and ultimately to lay down his life for you. Offering himself as a living sacrifice for you. And today with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here saying, I've never given my life to Jesus, I've never accepted that forgiveness in my life, but I want to today. This is your opportunity. Say yes to Jesus. Say, I'm in to following him, to living a life that is fruitful, useful, to laying down my life like he laid down his. Be used in the bigger picture for God. That's you today. All you have to do today, I'm making it sound really big and grand, but it's so simple. All you have to do is say, I'm in to following Jesus. I accept his forgiveness in my life. I want to live for him. If that's you and you're in this room, would you just raise your hand? I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. If you're watching online, you can text the number on the screen or type I'm in in the comments. Raise that hand high if you're here in the room. The ushers just have a small card they want to give you, help you with that decision. And you can put those down. Thank you. Maybe the rest of you here today are saying, you know what, I've believed in Jesus for a long time but I know I'm not being fruitful 
I'm not producing anything that would help anyone else. I'm just surviving right now. I need Jesus to come in, help me produce fruit again. That's you, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Keep those up for just a moment as we pray. Father, pray for every single person with their hand raised in this room and watching online. God, that you would just pour your Holy Spirit within them because ultimately they cannot produce fruit on their own. Your Holy Spirit does that. We pour the Holy Spirit into our souls and out comes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. God, I just pray that you would pour those out right now. Wrap your arms around each person that just wants to humble themselves and be useful again in your kingdom. God, show us how to do that. Put new gifts and talents and callings within each and every one of us, that we would wake up in the morning excited to go and do what you've called us to. Not just asking God to bless all my things. God, help me have a good, easy, comfortable day. But God, challenge me. Push me out of my comfort zone. Let me affect more people in this world. Let me love people better than I did yesterday. Let me see the need in my world. Not just be so consumed with what I'm going through, but really help other people. God, help us lay down our lives like Jesus. Thank you for his example, for his sacrifice. Thank you for the story of Palm Sunday in the Bible where we can see that Jesus could have been king, but he chose not to cling to it. Chose to lay down his life instead. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.